in the holiday spirit, I have a glass of wine while we're recording this. <laughs> Very nice. I have an ulcer and uh, I'm extremely exhausted in the holiday spirit. Oh, good. A glass of wine for me and an ulcer for you. As we record, today is Boxing Day, as we would call it in the UK. And I think, do you have a Boxing Day in Australia as well? We certainly do. And it's the most pointless, well, not pointless, but just nobody really knows what it means. And I think at some stage, all children ask that question. Right. Is Boxing Day about boxing people? Right. It's like the birds and the bees talk, except, you know, less awkward because of the content, right. but more awkward because you don't actually know the answer to that one. Well, actually, uh, I, I come prepared. Well, actually, I'll tell you what my dad told me. Okay. He told me that uh, back whenever, he didn't actually say that. I'm, he, I'm sure he was much more historically accurate, but I can't actually remember. Back whenever, the households used to send their servants and cooks and maids home on the 26th of December with boxes of gifts yes. for taking to their families and they would grant aforementioned house staff a day off on Boxing Day. Hence, it was Boxing Day. I believe that is true. Particularly because they didn't get Christmas off because that's right. obviously that's the family wanted to have Christmas and have their nice meal for Christmas and that's right. uh, the servants had to serve it and make it and all that. So they, so they get their Christmas a, d a day later. Yeah, I think that is it. When I was younger, I always assumed it was just the day you dealt with all the boxes from the presents you'd got. Yeah, that's actually, <laughs> I think that's not an uncommon hypothesis of most children, actually. <laughs> that's like, uh, right. so now I've got all this stuff, what do I do with all these boxes? Hence Boxing Day. Right. I think we, uh, you know, you know how, uh, you know, Halloween um, is a very, very important and fun occasion in the Americas, well, specifically North America. However, certainly when I was a child, we never, never celebrated Halloween. How about where you grew up in the multiple places that you grew up? Did you celebrate Halloween? Uh, we did, actually, although I think this is not a question of place so much as age. Okay. Because... I get the impression, and I think I've talked about this once before, I get the impression that my age is more or less the borderline. People younger than me in the UK, it seems, have all just done Halloween for as long as they remember, and it's oh, a normal okay. holiday to them. Right. And people older than me tend to think of it as an American intrusion and are a bit cynical about it and don't really like it. Yeah, that's me. And then my age is like right on the borderline of okay. people who who didn't start growing up with it, but it came in while they were still fairly young. And some of them got into it and like it, and some of them didn't get into it and feel, you know, the same way as as you feel. Now, in my case, of course, I didn't move to England until 1992 right. when it was already well underway. And so I thought of it as an English thing that we didn't have in Spain as opposed to a new American thing that we didn't have when I was younger. I, you know, I had no way of knowing that they didn't do that in England right. in the mid-80s or whatever. Right. So I thought of it as an English thing, but I later found out that a lot of English people very much don't <laughs> right. think that. So you are, that's, that sounds very conflicted, but I, I think, uh, yeah, I definitely fall into that uh, category that you said of the, the older group who are just a bit cynical about it and it just seems like a, some kind of commercial sickness that's been inherited from America via television media and the like. However, I think we can we can get back at them by spreading the wonderful fun and joy of Boxing Day. What do you think? Do you think there's, there's, there's potential for it? I think Boxing Day will struggle to compete. And one of the things with Halloween, and, and this is, I think, still the case today, certainly when I was young, even though we did 
do you know a bit of dressing up and trick-or-treating and stuff for halloween i feel like guy fawkes day you know bonfire night on the 5th of november which is less than a week after halloween is a bigger deal i always felt like it was a bigger deal and we had a the whole of my primary school had an event on the saturday closest to bonfire night and we would have a bonfire obviously Mm. and big fireworks biggest fireworks of the year in america I i think they have that on independence day or maybe new year's but i would say certainly in terms of local fireworks maybe not london which does a big thing for new year's but in terms of the sorts of fireworks you'll get in towns across the country bonfire night is is the biggest event and i still think of that as a much bigger thing than halloween Mm. yeah we don't have guy fawkes day in australia well actually i don't i've been away from australia for so long they may have it by now but uh... i would be surprised if you do it's such a (laughs) i mean it's such a weird holiday is we're literally burning effigies i mean we only stopped burning effigies of the pope a hundred years ago and we switched to guy fawkes Fawkes. poor old old guy probably the uh the only equivalent I can think of when I'm thinking of extravagant fireworks displays would probably be Australia Day in uh, Australia, right? Which I have fond memories of. You know, you would go down to the parklands or wherever, and there would all these people sitting on the grass drinking Coca-Cola or beer or whatever. And there was always, uh, you know, guy, some guy with his. This is memories of the '80s here, so there'll be like uh, some guy parking up in his Datsun or his uh, what would it be like a Oh, what do we what do we used to call those? Ah, uh, oh, some Australian listeners are going to have to help me out. What's the name of the? It's like a sedan car that's been that's kind of slightly mutated into a van on the back and a sedan on the front, <laughs> and it's made by. Oh wow, I can't remember. We'll need to get the Australians on the Reddit. I cannot help you, being neither Australian nor at all interested in cars. <laughs> I can't, like, yeah, I can't remember. Anyway. So yes, Australia Day. I mean, Sydney does a big, big thing for New Year's as well. I was in Sydney for New Year fireworks once. It's very yeah, good. We uh, we don't have any big bridges like that in Adelaide, so we, we can't really do that. So we have uh, there's uh, a radio station called SAFM, and they would have this synchronized music firework display. <laughs> so you go down to the parklands with your aforementioned. There's that word again, Coca Cola. Are they sponsoring us? <laughs> Have you, have you snuck in a deal with them behind my back? <laughs> just raking in all the sponsorship men. No, just hold on. I'm just going to take a sip here. Oh, that's, that's the feeling. That's the, the refreshing bit. taste of an ice-cold Coca-Cola. Anyway, um, SAFM would do this uh, synchronized thing where they would uh, synchronize music on the radio to the fireworks display. So everybody would take their FM radios, which, of course, in the 80s, 80s everybody had an FM radio. And, uh, you know, you would take that down to the uh, parklands and watch the massive fireworks display. And that was Australia Day. Just to throw in a very, very smooth segue here. Speaking of radio, today I decided as a little bit of a Christmas present for my family and myself, I decided to purchase a fairly inexpensive Bluetooth radio speaker set. So it's kind of like a Bluetooth, well, I guess it's kind of like a box full of speakers that you connect to with bluetooth i don't really know what you'd even call that it's not really a stereo what's the bluetooth but is it has it got a radio in it or is it just it's a set of speakers for whatever bluetooth device like your iphone or your computer or whatever yes that so it's basically yeah you just connect to it with your phone or your computer and then you just play your music through oh, i see i think i would call those bluetooth speakers i don't know if it counts as a hi-fi because it's it's basically mono mm. anyway oh it's 
it's fantastic. It's uh, it it just I mean the sound is not that great. I mean so it's a hi fi and that means that it's like all bass and all treble mm-hmm. and uh, but it's very small and it sits on the table and it looks very nice and it's just uh, so nice to sit at the 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 table listening to radio. You know I just <laughs> I've just fallen back in love with radio. It's it's great. Mm-hmm. Are you listening to that through? Your iPhone? Yes, I am using a. I think I might have mentioned it before on our uh, one of our previous episodes when we talked about the internet and uh, curated media. Yeah, it was a couple of episodes ago. You're talking about Shuri FM and yeah, and well, similar. It's the the app is called Simple Radio and uh, it's right. it's fantastic. But uh, yeah, I recently discovered a new radio station called Vinyl FM from Stockholm, mm. and they play basically uh, all 70s and 80s stuff. But I don't think they're actually playing from vinyl. It would be kind of nice if they were, but they're all they're all the kind of <laughs> you, you just know, hear the crackling in the background. <laughs> that's right, and the occasional skip. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just so nice. And we have, uh, of course, because of uh, Simple Radio, of course, connects to online streamed radio services. We can also connect to things like Classic FM in the UK mm. and um, uh, all all manner of radio stations. But it's just so nice, you know, just. Uh, Sounds good, and um, I feel some responsibility as a you know somebody involved heavily in music throughout my life. I feel some responsibility to provide for my children sort of like a musical backdrop to their childhood, just because that's what I had mm. when I was growing up. So you know, having this radio station that plays really, really fantastic music from the seventies and the eighties, which is basically means you know very. Well, at least from the eighties, very glossy pop production with wonderful, wonderful, memorable melodies. And the seventies, of course, is uh, a whole lot of attitude and interesting ideas and you know innovative times. So, uh, yeah, it's just it's just great. Mm. So what when you were growing up? What was the what's some music that you can remember as a backdrop to your childhood? So I did not really have such a strong backdrop. I don't think mm. musically we didn't. I don't remember that we played a huge amount of music at home. And I don't think my parents were like, they like music. They have their favorite artists and things like that. But I don't think they were like massively, massively into music. Hmm. I was really into Michael Jackson when I was five. Excellent. And a big, big fan of him. I think we had the cassettes of at least a few of his albums Bad was the most recent one to have come out at the time that I am remembering. Right. And I think after Bad, it was Dangerous, which I that is the one that I remember coming out. Bad is like the one that had already come out when I first kind of encountered Michael Jackson. That's what I first got into. Mm. And then Dangerous came out not that long before we left Spain, I think. Right. And that was good. I remember on my eighth birthday, I think it was, which was my last birthday in Spain, my mum arranged for the local radio station in Marbella to play Man in the Mirror mm. for me, which is a song all about change. <laughs> as that's a pretty as, I, as very appropriate for your birthday, your eighth birthday. <laughs> that's, a, that's a I don't know what kind of message your mother might have been sending you there, Danny. Cause that, I mean, the main it's I'm starting with the Man in the Mirror. Right, right. It's all about- <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's time for me to take a good look at myself. Right. <laughs> you know, the first eight years of my life, fair enough, coast along, that's fine. But you're eight now. You've got to start to take life seriously. That's right. That's right. 
that's a that's a that's an interesting choice. Yeah, that's um, great. well. Yeah, I don't actually know whether she chose it or whether she just said play him some Michael Jackson because he likes that, and the radio station chose it. Oh, okay, I'm not sure, but yeah, it's a great song. Anyway, it's a good song. Good yeah. album. The whole album's good. Yeah, Michael Jackson is fantastic. You know, it's interesting now. We are. Uh, it almost feels like we're sort of slowly closing up an era. You know, of those. Uh, you know, really fantastic entertainers from the uh, late 70s and the 80s. You know, of course, recently we uh, had the sad passing of David Bowie, who was one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, and there's George Michael as well, and, you know, there are numerous others. Did George Michael die? He did. You didn't know? I totally missed that. Really? When did he die? (laughs) I I wouldn't be able to bring up the date for you. It was a few months, no? Maybe quite a few months ago, actually. It was before Bowie, I'm pretty sure. Well, that was... Bowie was like the first thing that happened in 2016. Bowie was nearly two years ago now. Okay, well, maybe maybe it was... Really? Was it that long ago? It was a long time. 2016 was like a bad year for amazing pop stars. Well, here you go. It was like actually... Bowie died, Prince died, Leonard Cohen died, loads of people died. Right, it was actually the 25th of December 2016. George Michael passed away, sadly. On Christmas Day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was it was just a there's a very fascinating aspect to to these people, you know, these entertainers from the early 80s. And um you know, of course there's many who are thankfully still with us, uh, such as Madonna and uh, Elton John uh, and numerous others of course, but um it was kind of almost the first time that musicians received fame on that level where it's kind of consuming of the person in a way, you know, it becomes, and then with, of course, uh, the gradual growth and ubiquity of, um, of mass media uh, and people's sort of thirst to know more about these famous people and their curiosity to, to, to see and to, to hear and to find out and to be informed about what's going on with the people that produce this great music that they love. And of course the, the gradual change in music technology as far as reproducing music is concerned, you know, where we had uh, LP records giving way to the cassette tape. And, of course, with the cassette tape came, you know, the era of the Walkman and portable music and Mm. basically just more and more constant exposure to music and the music that you love. And, of course, radio radio stations were extremely powerful and extremely uh, strong in that era as well and just expanding single individuals' fame to just unbelievable proportions on an international scale and it's almost you know uh, outside of politics it's it's almost you know the first time i guess in uh, human history that single people could have so much um uh, attention and and so many people monitoring what they're doing and and eager to get out there and you know listen to their latest things or buy the tapes or or you know go to concerts or whatever so you know with the the uh, passing of such musicians of this kind, such as the, um, of course, actually, I guess it's not true to say that it's the, probably the first time would probably be the Beatles, I suppose, or maybe Presley. Right. It's hard to say because, I mean, they're, they're a very, through musical. I think history. Beatles did break new ground in terms of, I mean, they broke new ground in all sorts of respects. Yeah. But one of them is that kind of mass media, mass hysteria. Right. That they sort of introduced. So I, I do wonder whether this is going to be something like 2016 seemed like a uniquely bad year where so many of these icons mm. 
passed away. I mean, the fact that Prince and David Bowie could go in the same year just seems cruel. Yeah. <laughs> but is this going to keep happening? Like, have we now reached an era where actually, starting from that sort of generation, more and more of these idols appeared and there's going to be so many of them who are just reaching a certain age mm. which let's face it for the lifestyle they lead is probably younger than the average life expectancy mm. uh, and we're going to start seeing this every year we're just beloved sort of people f from a few decades ago start uh, all sort of dying in the same year it's yeah kind of weird yeah i think um it, it's a difficult thing to say of course because our generation you know i guess a generation of people who grew up listening to pop music in the 80s or in the 70s or even in the 60s you know mm. naturally yeah that's that's 50 40 years ago so right you know <laughs> things move on of course mm. but i just find it really interesting when you compare the fame that the, the the nature of the fame that these musicians had through these decades as it was gradually becoming more commonplace the idea of popular musicians beatles abba Further into the um, the eighties, of course, where you have uh, Michael Jackson, of course, and then um, Madonna and yeah, Elton John and Billy Joel and Dire Straits, and the list just goes on and on. Mm. It is uh, interesting to to say, yeah, whether why is it that there's so much attention? Is it because social media is here with us now and it's part of our lives? So previously, for example, when Michael Jackson passed away, the nature of that attention and I guess grieving in a way you could call it I suppose has changed now because social media is so much more prevalent mm. uh, and so much more commonplace yes I guess many factors contribute to it but uh, it, it's definitely true to say that you know now we're getting to this point where we're sort of 40 45 years forward from that era of intensely popular musicians let's appreciate them while they're still with us <laughs> yeah 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 so follow up. <laughs> Let's get to it. <laughs> we got sidetracked very quickly. Uh, I think follow up will just blast through really quickly just to mention a few things that I noticed after we released the last one or that were pointed out to me. Okay. First one is the lawn mowing game that I alluded to. I tried to look it up and it sounds like I was misremembering it quite substantially because it was not even available on the Spectrum. It was actually on the Commodore 64. Right. But it is a British game and it's by Jeff Minter. Excellent. Of Lamasoft fame, so very classic. And he made a sequel to it. It's called Hover Bother, and he made Hover Bother 2. Not all, like since 2000, I think. Right. Anyway, I'll stick a link in the show notes. The other thing is, while we were talking about roguelikes, I forgot to mention a specific roguelike that anyone who grew up with Windows 3.1 machines <laughs> yeah. will have fond memories of which is Castle of the Winds. Did you ever encounter this game? Castle of the Winds. No, I didn't. Such a classic. Yeah. So it's it's Rogue. It's a Rogue clone, right? Mm. But obviously this is Windows, so it's not ASCII text. Instead, all the graphics are done with icons, like .ico files. Oh, okay. Which I think was 16 by 16 uh, icons, you know, squares, right. and quite limited in their color palette. But all the graphics were done with those. And the start was always the same. You started in this little town and then you went into the mountain 
But then once you went down to the second level, from there on, it was all randomly generated mm. in much the same manner as Rogue. And that would have actually been the first roguelike I ever played. Obviously, I'd never heard of Rogue, and I was not aware of the term roguelike at this point. Mm. But that, that would have been the first one I played. And it was great. It was shareware, which was popular back then, yep. where, a system whereby you would have multiple episodes of a thing, and each episode would have so many levels, and you would get the first episode f- for free and be told you can share it with all your friends, mm. but you had to pay to unlock the later episodes. Mm. Wolfenstein 3D and a lot of other games were distributed like this. Mm. Uh, so Castle of the Winds was like this. I only ever played the free shareware version, and I don't really understand how the later episodes were different since it's all a randomly generated rogue game anyway. So you could just keep playing the free one and it would be different every time. So I'm not, I'm, I, maybe I should look it up. But anyway, very good. Bust out your old Windows 3.1 and give it a shit. Probably still runs on Windows because they, they like their backwards compatibility over there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you can find a copy. Uh, it's great. And one other thing, I'll put a link in the show notes to a YouTube video of a man reading a book. I wish I could find a link of the text of that book. But all I can find is this YouTube video of this person reading an extract from a book about the ThinkPad, the IBM ThinkPad laptop. Right. And this book came out in 2000, so it's quite an old book already. But it talks about why computers are that beige color. Right. You talked last episode about the Amiga, and in fact, we, we named the episode after, after it, the beige Lamborghini Countach. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I looked up the Lamborghini Countach after you said it, and I realized how appropriate a metaphor that was. Sorry, I wasn't familiar. I, I didn't know that uh, you actually uh, are not that familiar with cars. It's, it's a car. So, I, yeah, so <laughs> it, it, it does look quite a lot like the Amiga. Yes. Anyway... There is a reason that old computers are beige and remain beige for so long, and I had no idea, but it has to do with German and later possibly even European rules, regulations about the colors of computers and equipment in office environments. Mm. I think they, I don't totally understand, but I think they want, they didn't want office machinery to be too overbearing or something. They wanted office environments to be bright. Right. And so it was like a law that you were not allowed dark casing on equipment right and obviously when ibm was making the thinkpad they really wanted it to be black but that wouldn't have conformed to these german regulations i think they might even have made a light colored thinkpad for germany anyway uh, you can listen to a man spend 10 minutes or something reading you this story out of a book (laughs) Uh, in the link that I will put in the show notes. That's interesting. I actually watched the first few minutes of that video, and it is very fascinating. I didn't finish all of it, but uh, uh, it is very fascinating. One thing that he mentions is that um, I think it might be said in the book, I'm not sure, I have to go rewatch the video to confirm this, but mm. the ThinkPad was one of the earliest examples of a computer that wasn't beige and that was black. Yes. That actually, I... Again, I have to go back and watch the video to reconfirm that, but that's actually not correct, I don't think, because actually this occurred to me when I was watching, and and he said, you know, he had a on in the video you can see he's got an example of the old uh, one of the early IBM ThinkPads, and they, they do mm-hmm. have a very distinct look about them. Yes, one of my favorite industrial designers from back when I was in the industrial design industry 
is a British industrial designer called Bill Mogridge. And Bill Mogridge is famous for many things, one of which is a very iconic early example of a laptop computer called the Grid Compass. Mm-hmm. And if you want to know what the Grid Compass looks like, you've probably seen it if you've seen the movie Aliens. Oh. Because if I recall correctly, when they have the sentry guns and he pulls out a a bunch of kind of portable screens and flips them up and you can see on this kind of amber monochrome screen the amount of the rounds of ammunition that are left and the heat and all that that's being displayed on the sentry guns. Do you remember that scene? Uh, let's just say yes. <laughs> okay, no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the Grid Compass is an early example of uh, a laptop computer from 1982 and it is as black as they come. Of course, with this monochrome screen which has this glowing amber color. Mm. The screen itself is pretty much always black, except for when there's there's amber on it. But the grid compass is, yeah, it's an iconic piece of industrial design from the 80s by Bill Mogridge. And uh, that is as as black as you can get. They look absolutely fantastic. I love the the design. I think uh, this is one of these ones where it was such a revolutionary idea to have this screen that folds down on top of the keyboard, which nowadays, you know, we take for granted basically with laptop computer designs you know you kind of expect that oh it was a very practical idea really where you got the, the the keyboard that fits underneath the screen so when you open it you can not only can you have nice a nice viewing angle but you can have this large full-size keyboard there for your fingers to type on mm-hmm. the original grid compass also had a telephone which uh if you go to have a look at uh pictures of the grid compass you'll you'll simultaneously think my god that looks so cool and also wow that looks so dated look at that telephone <laughs> and a pretty revolutionary idea, really, in 1982 to have a telephone on the side of a computer. You definitely uh, would impress people just by people just look at that and say, wow, you can make phone calls on that? Mm. I'm looking at photos of it now, although the ones that I'm looking at don't have the telephone. So maybe there's a specific model that had the telephone. I'll have to look that up later. Yeah, it must be an accessory. If you, if you look for long enough through images on, on Google or DuckDuckGo, uh, <laughs> you will uh, find the model that had the, the telephone on the side. Right. So, yeah, I um, I have a real love of monochrome amber. I've, I think it might be because there's something about the blue light that comes from flat screen displays, mm. uh, which can be very harsh. And I find that the the if I have to look at some color on black, then amber, for me at least or sort of orangey yellow color basically mm. is is the the most comfortable and the most visible to be looking at for long periods of time so mm. i have my um command line shells and stuff in amber on black and uh, the, the main one for me of course is when i'm using uh renoise and making music in in my tracker daw that's all numbers on a black screen mm. <laughs> and uh uh seeing that in amber uh it it's great i love amber do you have a favourite monochrome colour, Danny? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, obviously, green is the classic sort of hacker aesthetic. Yeah, I find green green on black actually to be very harsh. Mm. I mean, I I do remember using old computers with it. I think my grandmother's old Amstrad PCW might have been amber on black. Right. It was either amber on black or green on black, and I think it might have been amber. And I actually played Leisure Suit Larry on that computer. 
which I was definitely not old enough to play. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was, luckily, I couldn't get past the first puzzle, so I never saw any of the dirty stuff. Right. <laughs> or unluckily, yeah, I guess. <laughs> we had a conversation um, many, many years ago specifically about this topic, about uh, for uh, coders, programmers such as yourself, mm. you, you are, uh, f- for the majority of your production time, when you're sitting in front of your computer, you are looking at text. Yes. And... Yeah, we actually had a, a long discussion about the relative merits, comfort, discomfort, and preferences for what color to make your text editor. Right. And, you know, most people, a lot of people will um, be familiar with some of the more common sort of color schemes out there that, that tend to find their way into most text editors, such as Monokai and uh, what are some of the other ones? Uh, Solarized. Solarized is a classic. Yeah, what are the others? Default, Vim, Fruit Salad. <laughs> anyway, yes. Are you going to ask me what I'm using? I'm going to ask you what your current preference is, yes. Okay, hang on, I'll send it to you. One thing we haven't subjected our, our uh, beloved listeners to just yet is a discussion about text editors. No. And um, we will one day, not today, we will one day, <laughs> but I can remember a, a long and very enjoyable conversation on the train talking about uh, changing your fonts in your text editor of choice uh yes well yes i'll talk about that briefly we can talk very briefly about color schemes and then stop talking about text editors okay i think that, that's what we should do yes so here is a link to grovbox which is the scheme that i'm using right now in vim <laughs> Grov. <laughs> I, I don't know what that means i don't know but it sounds fantastic grov yes it's like bruv it is but, but with, with a, a g, g. so <laughs> Uh, Grovebox, it comes with a dark mode and a light mode, much as Solarize does, but it's less green. Oh, very nice. <laughs> very nice. But it's a, it is another low contrast. And this is designed for a relatively new thing that has started to become popular in the last couple of years, which is for terminals to support true color, which is 16-bit color. Right. Until very recently, terminals could support 256 color. Hmm. which is 8-bit color. And so they had a, a maximum of 256 colors available to them. Even then, it was a bit fiddly. Like the default for most terminals is to have 16 colors and no more. And then if you want different colors, you have to actually change your terminal's color scheme. Right. So that's how Solarized works. Like not only do you install a Vim color scheme, but you also have to install a color scheme for your terminal so that Vim is capable of displaying the the actually correct colors. This one is designed for terminals that support 16-bit color, so Mm. it just specifies the exact colors that it it wants. And so that is what I am using now. I do switch around quite a lot. I use Solarized for a while. I've used Monokai for a while. And for a little while, which is when we had this conversation, I was experimenting with a monochrome color scheme, hmm. which made use of typography to distinguish different things. Right. So the whole idea with a color scheme when you're programming, just to sort of s- summarize it for people who've never programmed, is that when you're programming, you have different kinds of things that you work with. You have keywords, which are specific to the programming language, and they have some special meaning to that programming language. And then you have variables, which are like slots into which you can put values while you're working with them and doing mathematics with them and stuff Mm. and then you've got functions which are little pieces of code sort of 
bunched together that you use regularly to make them more convenient to use. So these are all different kinds of things. And by having each of them displayed in a different color, it can make it very easy to identify what's what at a glance. Right. So you don't have to read and sort of parse the syntax yourself in order to understand it. You can just look and see, oh, that's a function, that's a variable, right. that's a keyword, and, and whatever. And it's very commonly done with different colors. But for a while, I experimented with doing it using typography. Mm. And in order to, this is when I was also using Emacs, which I usually use Vim. I'm not going to go into any more detail on that today. Um, <laughs> and uh, But the one thing to say is that Emacs, certainly the, the GUI Emacs, has better support for typography and fonts. You can have different display elements actually displayed using different fonts, whereas Vim, you have to set one font for the entire screen. Right. And so that allowed me to have bold face for keywords and italics for comments. I think, I think I had comments be italics and slightly faded. And at one point, actually, I made the comments use a proportional font mm. so that it read like English. And then the code using a monospace font so that it could be lay out, laid out nicely. Yeah. So I, I actually really like that. And I would quite like to, to go back maybe at some point to experimenting with a monochrome typographical syntax scheme. Syntax highlighting seems like the wrong word when you do that. But hmm. it's not very easy to do effectively in Vim. Right. There is one font which is called Pragmata Pro. Right. And it's quite expensive. It's usually $200. Mm. It was on sale for $120 on Black Friday, but I missed it. I probably would have bought it at that price, but mm. I missed it, unfortunately. And I'm not going to buy it at $200. So I'm just see if he does it again next year. But Pragmata Pro is a very nice font, very nicely designed by an Italian designer called Fabrizio Schiavi. Mm. And I'll, I'll send you a link. It includes quite a number of different styles within it, as well as the usual uh, standard, bold, and italic. It also includes a cursive variant, which Operator does as well, and Operator sort of made famous. Right. And it also includes a, a Fraktur variant. I don't know how to pronounce that, but it's the German, the old German style of writing. Right. And so it's got a number of these variants, and it's very customizable. And with that font, I might be able to do, even in Vim, even in the terminal, I might be able to make it so that I can use this typographical style for my syntax, because you can, just using Unicode, special Unicode operators, you can switch between these different styles. And so even though the font remains the same, if you can just persuade vim to switch between styles instead of between colors essentially to have these unicode markings hmm. then you could make it so that your comments can go in cursive and your code can go in the monospace and right and you can have warnings and to do's and fix me's and things come up in that german fracture font now that looks imposing when when you were, <laughs> when you were doing this previously uh was this Light on dark or dark on light? This was dark on light. Right. This was on an off-white background. Yeah. That's, I think I remember the, um, uh, one of the things that we were talking about in that conversation. I think with, with graphic design, there is a lot of theory and a lot of understanding now about the contrast of type 
depending on whether you are dark on light or light on dark. Right. And I think that the the conclusions are that if you are dark on light, you'll tend to see characters as being thinner than they actually are. So that's very good for when you need fine details and if you're wanting to show the sort of crisp fine details of of font design then dark on light works very well for that mm. whereas light on dark on the other hand you'll tend to see things as being fatter than they actually are and so in that case you know uh, sans serif fonts will tend to perform a little bit better in that situation just because they become very very legible because they're already you know the the, the chunky line weights will appear kind of very fat and very easily visible. Right. And so often you'll find that if you're using dark on light, for example, as a programmer, rather than black on white, that will come across as looking uh, very harsh, whereas white on black will be less harsh. Right. <laughs> because right. The, the, the white will appear kind of fat on top of the black background. So this Grovebox theme it looks excellent. I think it looks really good. I love the uh, the slight browny, orangey, yellow tinge to it, mm. which, uh, again, I, my, my eyes just gravitate to it. Yeah, I, I find that so much more just easy to get along with than, than Solarized. I did use Solarized for a while, and Solarized is quite good if you've got small windows, I think. But I tend to work with a full-screen terminal, right? and just that much green just a sea of green like right. i turn away from my monitor and everything looked a bit pink you right. know <laughs> yeah this this one is fantastic actually one of um my uh favorite features and it's a it's a small thing and i can remember when it first came out i was really cynical mm. one of my favorite features of ios and i think potentially also on android as well i think there might be similar features or similar apps that can do the same thing but the uh the night mode mm. where uh, at a certain time, it will very, very, very subtly, slowly fade the whites into a more yellow, ambery kind of hue. Right. Uh, after a certain time, right. I remember specifically saying to you when that, that feature was first announced that I was I was like really cynical about. It. I was like, oh, who's going to want that? Right. Because I think I turned it on. I think, in fact, I I wanted it, and right. so I downloaded the beta so that I could turn it on. Right. Right. I think <laughs> I remember being very cynical about it, but uh, now I'm an absolute convert and i think um especially for parents like myself when you have kids and uh, you know mm -hmm. at night time when for whatever reason you've had to go to bed earlier because kids need want you to go to bed with them or or there's there's trouble or whatever uh, and you're not you're not sleepy yet but your child is sleeping but you need to be there but it has to be dark so you want to use your phone but you know even if you turn the brightness all the way down Looking at the sort of bluey white kind of screen, it can be, yeah, especially if you're browsing the web and not using an app that has a night mode kind of thing. It uh, can be very, very tiring on the eyes and having the uh, the whites appear as a yellowish hue, mm. such as, you know, the yellow that I see that they've used in uh, this Grovebox theme is also, it's kind of like a, a yellowy beige color. Right. It looks, it looks excellent. I love the background too. It's sort of a, a brown, yellowy sort of brown Gray brown color looks fantastic. Funny enough, we've almost gone the opposite direction because I no longer have night shift turned on on my iOS devices. Oh, really? Although the reason for that is not because I've decided I like harsh blue glares in my eyes, <laughs> but is because they now have with the the newer models they've got this true tone display, 
right which does a similar thing but more intelligently right. to the night shift so rather than just shifting yellow after a certain time it actually uses sensors to look at the background light conditions mm. and adjust the the color balance and the and the light you know the light coming out of your device right to match those and the th- the thing that's great about that is you get the same sort of effect mm. of the being easier on the eyes but you don't even notice it's on it doesn't look because it's adjusting to to match the surrounding conditions it's like if you if you take an ipad something or something like that and you look at it outside and then you look at it in a dark room in the dark room it looks really bright and harsh right mm. in a way that it doesn't look when you take it outside but if you do the same thing with a piece of paper that's not true right, right. the right. the piece of paper just looks like you assume the piece of paper is the same color even though it it actually you know is coming into your eyes as a duller color it mm. feels like the same color right in the same way because this is adjusting it's adjusting it to make it look as if it's the same color even when you're in different light conditions when that color would actually be changed by the different light conditions i see uh, so it's quite a clever system. So I have that on now instead of Night Shift. Oh, okay. But I still have Night Shift on on my MacBook. Mm. Yeah, I, I kind of, I think I draw the line at using it on my computer just because most of the times I'm wanting to see accurate color representation. Where Yeah, if, you, if you're in work where that's important, it's obviously a total non-starter. For me, it's, it's like my, my black terminal gets a slightly yellower black. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So speaking of light and dark... <laughs> Do I do I get an award for like best segue on Station Thirteen ever? Excellent. Carry on. I was actually I was actually planning that. You know, I, I, I was actually that was actually a a nicely calculated segue. Okay, go, Alex. What on earth are we going to talk about next? Well, so listeners, I I shall warn you at this point that uh, we're now going to talk about Star Wars. The Last Jedi. Yes, indeed. We've both seen this recently. Yes, prior to the show, we were kind of debating, should we kind of do a very careful discussion about it without giving away any of the the, the plot corners or anything? Or should we just kind of draw a line here and say, right, if you don't want spoilers, then you should stop listening now. And I think, yeah, we, we decide that it's probably a little bit difficult to talk about our actual feelings about this movie without giving away some of those plot corners. And so... We're, we're going to do it. Uh, so, therefore, if you are looking forward to seeing the movie and you haven't had a chance to yet and you do not wish to know anything about it and you're trying to keep yourself nice and fresh for the full experience, then we will see you next time. Yes. Because uh, spoilers lie ahead. Yes. Stop here. Stop. Pause. If you haven't stopped yet, you really must. Yeah. Of, of course, you know, dedicated Session 13 listeners will actually pause at this point go to see the movie, and then come back and listen to the rest of this fine discussion because... uh, I would expect nothing less. That's right, our uh, beloved listeners. Anyway, so uh, I went to see The Last Jedi on uh, Saturday, so it's a few days ago now. Yep, and I saw it the Monday before you, so it's it's a little bit fresher in your mind than it is in mine. And I think before before we sort of jump in, maybe we should set a little bit of context because... I think you grew up with the Star Wars movies to a much greater extent than I did. Right. I obviously saw them when I was younger, but I wasn't like super into them. Uh, uh, m- most people my age, I think, were much more into them right. than I was, especially nerds. So, uh, <laughs> especially, you know, I don't mean that to be, <laughs> especially nerds like me. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
Um, but for for whatever reason, I vaguely remember watching The Empire Strikes Back at my grandparents' house when I was like 10. But apart from that, I don't have particularly strong memories of Star Wars when I was young. Right. I think that you do. I do. Like a lot of people uh, in my generation and my age, you know, I grew up with the movies, played pretend Star Wars countless times where for some reason I always got lumped with the role of Lando. <laughs> don't really know <laughs> oh, why. That's a Stranger Things reference in there, but uh, you, you won't know about that because you haven't seen Stranger Things. Anyway. Yeah, so let's see where to begin. Firstly, I, I went with some good friends and they absolutely hated it. Did they? Oh, interesting start. I've seen so much negative... Uh, sort of feedback right. and negative ne- negative comments from people I know personally on my Facebook. Right. And yet I've seen so many positive critical reviews and I guess I'll put my cards on the table, but I really liked it. Mm. So I've been sort of interested by this whole, it seems to be a very polarizing movie. Yeah. For a little bit of context there, the, the friends that I went to see it with are both five to ten years younger than I am. And the reason that they didn't like... I'll put my cards on the table too. I thought it was very good. Okay. I thought it was very entertaining. Uh, definitely, um, you know, I would enjoy the opportunity to see it again. Mm. And I'll explain why in a moment. But uh, my friends couldn't stop ranting about how bad they thought it was and how, you know, they wouldn't even admit to being entertained <laughs> and that they, they wanted their money back. Bloody hell. Uh, I just said, you know, I mean, don't you feel that it was worth coming to see. It's like not not when it was this bad. Wow. And have they seen the prequels? Yeah. Because those, I mean, those were bad. That's an objective statement. <laughs> yes, yes, they have. And um, the main thing that they didn't like about uh, The Last Jedi was some of the uh, awkward plot corners mm. and some of the, I guess, questionable science. Okay. <laughs> they were... Like for about 10, 15 minutes, they were ranting about how ridiculous it was that Leia could pull herself back into the ship from the middle of a vacuum. I, well, okay, maybe we should go through the movie in order, but I, I will say that I also found that a little bit ridiculous. I think I recently saw a video on YouTube, uh, I think it was like BBC Smart Lab or one of those uh, channels, which actually went into what actually happens when your body is, is in a vacuum. Mm. And, you know, in, in popular... Uh, especially horror science fiction and and specifically I think the movie Total Recall has has a pretty gra- comically graphic uh, example of what happens when your body is uh, outside of any kind of suit on the surface of Mars. But anyway, um, I think I remember that it, the, a lot of the common beliefs that, you know, your your body explodes or it implodes or your your blood boils and your eyeballs pop out and all that kind of stuff is actually not true. Mm. And I think that uh, it is actually possible for a human to survive for a certain amount of time in the in uh, in a vacuum. Mm. But their point was just that you know, Leia. Okay, you know we know that she is strong with the Force, being a Skywalker. But mm. I mean, you never up to the up to that point, you never see her doing anything with the Force. Right. right. And now all of a sudden, she's been ejected out into space. She's more or less dead. And she's just kind of reaching her arm around and pulling herself back into the ship. Yes. And uh, that, that they thought, was just, just completely... I mean, I think they were about to, like, flip seats and storm out at that point. Right. I, I must admit, I thought that was pretty dumb. And 
and kind of unnecessary because there there wasn't really like the rest of the movie would have not changed at all had she died at that point right. i don't think right. so anyway i don't think i think we're skipping ahead i think we should well what do you think i think maybe we should do it in order okay i want to before we start though i want to just explain why i thought it was good because this covers the whole thing okay and i think that the big difference between my friends and myself is basically expectations mm. you know what what you go into a star wars movie hoping for mm. and for me i go into a star wars movie knowing that it's a space opera. Mm. And for me, I just basically want cool spaceships, great music, impressive art design, and that's it. And I'm happy. And I, you know, it it can be sort of dramatic, kind of silly, kind of campy, Mm. and that's just fine. You know, for me, Star Wars, for me, is it's not hard science fiction. It's, I mean, it's, it's basically... I've always understood it perhaps because of my upbringing with it as basically being a children's movie, more or less. Right. And, of course, you know, we've all grown up with these movies, so our memories of them, especially from my generation, you know, the memories of Star Wars are heavily, heavily influenced by the fact that we have viewed them first as children and gradually grown up with them. Right. And a lot of the more childish aspects of the Star Wars films, we can kind of you know, be comfortable with just because they're so closely associated with nostalgia and our memories of viewing them as young children. So when I come to view a modern Star Wars movie, for me personally, uh, I'm not affected by the silliness and I'm not affected by the kind of, uh, yeah, campiness of it. And I just like it to be big, dramatic spaceships, lasers, you know, explosions, great music, Great costume design, great backgrounds, you know, great sets, just exotic science fiction locations, you know, like cloud cities and and water planets and desert planets and swamp planets. And just therefore in seeing this movie, it has all that, you know. I mean, it was very light on the lightsaber action, I think is one of the criticisms that a lot of people have about it. Mm, okay. But uh, spaceships are great. You know, I love the dogfighting. I love that, that you know. Just space, you know. <laughs> right, I, I, right. So I I went into it expecting it just to be a kind of sort of awesome, silly space romp. <laughs> and and that's exactly kind of what it was. And that's why when I felt, walked out, I thought it was great. Yeah. Well, actually, funny enough, I went in with a similar attitude. And I was almost pleasantly surprised that for me, it was more than that. Mm. And not from a hard science point of view but from a sort of attitude point of view and and philosophical is maybe putting it a bit far but i find that in a sense in a sense it was very star wars right right it was fun and there was lots of action and there were lots of jokes and you know light-hearted entertainment mm. but underneath all that like if i was to say what is the sort of fundamental message of this film mm. I think this is a film about disappointment. Mm. Like everything goes wrong that could go wrong. Right. And like the heroes are so much less sort of lucky and heroic than right. they have tended to be in in previous films. So, you know, and for a Star Wars film to be almost, I mean, it, it's quite dark. It's dark in a very different way to like, you know the the Christopher Nolan Batman films or right. something like that, which are dark, right. capital D or whatever. But <laughs> like, like 
you know the the notion of of disappointment mm. as a theme yeah is is quite an adult and quite a dark thing to go for so i think you know very daring choice mm. by the director d- director ryan what's his name ryan johnson i think ryan johnson and you know because i have less hang-ups about my memories with the film than some people i think who you know grew, grew up with it and are more attached to it right i don't have this uh, kind of sense of wanting to protect the old films to the same extent so mm. i really liked it i was really happy to see him doing something that was quite different in a way to right. previous films while still maintaining the kind of fun entertaining nature of it so like starting from the very beginning like the yep. the start you know so many of these films have opened with some sort of space battle right right but here the focus is not really on i mean it's kind of on poe dameron but it's not really on poe dameron's heroism so much as his decision to put the lives of everyone around him at risk and the cost that that entailed and the fact that they sort of put front and center the cost of these exciting battles that you've seen in previous episodes as well a lot of people died in those ones as well but you forgot about them two seconds later Mm. but that almost set up the whole of the rest of the film it's like oh okay these big sort of heroic actions that you're seeing Mm. They come with a cost, mm. and it's not it's not so black and white. And in fact, the most heroic uh, member of that battle was not really Poe Dameron, but was the woman who who died, who sacrificed herself to to release the bombs, and it, which eventually caused them to win the battle. Right. From that moment on, you're ready for quite a different sort of movie, right? That's a really really good point. There are there are numerous points through the movie when. I hadn't actually ever thought of that, but now that you mention it, it's very true that it, it's a very kind of almost honest <laughs> mm. kind of uh, movie because the there are various moments uh, where, as you say, you know, it's dealing with the idea of disappointment. I mean, the, obviously the key one, and um, again, we've warned you about spoilers, although you're probably not listening to this if you're worried about that. <laughs> you better not be. <laughs> right. if, if you are, stop, stop now, stop right. while you can. Um Ray's parents, you know, and that was actually, right. I was actually very impressed at that point because, you know, being a, I was being in space opera and being campy and that's, which is, as I've mentioned, what my expectation was mm. when Kylo says, do you want me to tell you who your parents are? And, and he's, you know, at that point I was thinking, oh, here we go. Yes. I'm your brother or, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. actually your parents are, I don't know, like, whatever. And he says, no, your parents are nobodies. You know, you, you're nothing. You're a random person who get, who shouldn't really be part of this history, mm. but you are and all that. And that that's obviously the key moment where it's just, for, even for Ray, the one of the chief protagon- protagonists, it's like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> right. Well, I guess I'm, I'm not special after all. I'm just a random person. Right. And, yeah, also another thing that... Um, my friends were were bitterly disappointed by it was was Luke mm. you know because Luke Luke himself comes across in a very 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 honest realistic way right you know when you compare him to say return of the jedi mm. where in return of the jedi Luke is he's powerful he's strong he's confident you know he he's uh, in, in control to the point where he will allow himself to be captured by the empire so that he can have 
you know, have counsel with Darth Vader and then and then actually go to try to convert right. Darth Vader back to the, the, the light side of the Force. Right. A thing that Rey also tries to do, of course, and fails, as is right. the theme of this movie. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and then, of course, right up to the point where he's standing in front of the Emperor himself and facing off with, with the Emperor. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, that's the Luke Skywalker that we left. Mm. And now here he is. And he's like this hermit on an island who's cynical and he's uh, very depressed and very um, bitter about the past and about Jedi Knights and all of that whole culture Mm. to the point where he would exile himself with the last remnants of that culture and then close himself off from the Force so that he would be basically a complete just a, a man on an living on a rock with a bunch of books, right? You know, right, and porgs. Uh, yes, and the, the famous porgs, which <laughs> uh, which I thought were quite cute. But anyway, that's that's another another uh, conversation. Yeah. So apparently, Mark Hamill, when he first saw the script, he hated it mm. as well. Right. And he he originally had strong reservations about how you know Luke's personality and how he comes across. I think he changed his mind over the course of development of the movie. I'm not 100% sure about that, but I think he might have said in later interviews that he'd been won over and now he really liked it. Right. But I can sort of see how that would happen when you first look at the script and you're like, oh, like what's happened to Luke Skywalker? Right. But I, again, like all these other things, I think it's a great decision. I think it comes across as much more sort of, like you said, honest and... It's the initial disappointment. It's the first, after the setup of the last movie, mm. where Ray is, she's traveled all that way and she hands over the lightsaber to him and he sort of just looks at her and you're expecting him to say something profound. And then at the start of this one, as soon as you see that scene repeated, he takes the lightsaber, he just tosses it over his shoulder and wanders off. Right. <laughs> so dismissive. Right. It's interesting, you know, that honesty definitely also comes through with the humour that's used in the movie, which was another point of uh, disappointment, <laughs> ironically, for the friends that I went to see it with. You know, the humour is is much more almost modern in the, in the way that it's it's kind of uh, kind of a bit snarky, the, the humour. You know, for example, um, Poe asks to be connected with General Hugs instead of General Hux. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that scene. <laughs> well, that that whole back and forth between him and General Hux. I actually missed the General Hugs bit, mm. but he threw in a lot of other jokes after that as well. Yeah, and and I, one of the one one line that I, I found actually very funny was when uh, Luke was asking Ray, "Just who are you? You know, where where did you come from? Who are you?" And she, and she said, "I'm I'm just an, a nobody caught up in this, and I've I've." Uh, I've come from you know the the a nobody the middle of nowhere right and he says like where and he and says, says nobody Jack- comes from nowhere yeah nobody comes from nowhere and she says well I, I came from Jakku and and he says okay that's that's basically nowhere <laughs> that's uh like that I thought that was extremely funny but again it's just very yeah. they seem more like real people than these sort of. Uh, uh, yeah, legendary, iconic figures in in this this great grand story. Right. So that aspect, yeah, it was also very interesting. There were one of the most moving. There were two scenes uh, where I think the the director was really Johnson was really showing his his ability uh, to create the kind of drama that I went into the movie looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the scenes was when I believe the character's name was Haldo. Haldo. Holdo, was it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she uh, goes into light speed at a critical 
distance to the uh, First Order's fleet and thereby actually mm. ploughing through the Dreadnought. Right. That was actually, that was, that was an, again, you've sort of jumped ahead a little bit, but before all that happened, I think the reason that moment was so powerful mm. was because there was that whole setup before where, and again, he's playing with sort of Star Wars tropes and typical kind of entertainment, you know, this kind of movies tropes right. here, where you're set up to think that she's kind of just being passive and setting them up for failure. Right, right. right. And that Poe Dameron and, you know, Finn and Rose are going to save the day. Right, right. Whereas, actually, Finn and Rose's mission turns out to be almost completely pointless. Right. Which, again, has been kind of a bit of a complaint about the movie, two-and-a-half-hour movie, and you could take out their entire little adventure and it wouldn't change a thing. Right. Which I think is is actually a valid complaint, but on the other hand, I think it does fit with the theme mm. of, of disappointment that I've been talking about. That, mm. like, yes, they, they did this whole thing. That was completely pointless. Poe Dameron's insurrection, I mean, that's a treasonable offense. Right, right. <laughs> he, would, he would probably be put to death for that if this wasn't Star Wars. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> you know, that turns out to be a mistake as well. Right. And she turns out to be an extremely strong character right. who is willing to give her life for everyone else, right. but only after this long period of appearing to do nothing. Mm. And I do wonder whether that was a bit of a, a whole... It's like, did she really not need to tell them what her plan was? Like, was there a reason for that? Was it so that one of them wouldn't leak it to the First Order? I mean, it doesn't seem likely that they would but i think that's probably plausible because i think that she uh is like i said I, I don't really analyze much of star wars storylines but um uh, i think that she probably knew who she was dealing with with poe dameron right. and that because uh, he had the tendency to sort of um uh, you know go off and try and take matters into his own hands mm. she probably just didn't want the intervention from anybody therefore you know made those strategies uh without making it totally open to, at least to him mm. But just before we leave that point, that that scene where she uh, goes into uh, light speed through the uh, that was so wonderfully done. Like just the graphics, mm. and it was completely silent. I don't know if you remember, but the the music at that point is is completely uh, silent. So you you have no sound at all right. in that moment. Right. Uh, as as this fantastic image of the rebellions ship plowing this light hole through the uh, through the dreadnought and mm. that that was i was I, you know i was chilled i was like wow that's really impressive mm. and um mm. stepping the, the second thing that you mentioned there was the with rose and um finn finn yeah um with their escapades down on that casino planet mm. i don't know that that was uh, totally pointless because i think that it was helpful to obviously create the relationship between the two of them and also again part of that theme that you mentioned with disappointment uh that dj character the code breaker mm. who probably we will see again i'm sure <laughs> he was it dj i think that was his name wasn't it dj oh yes it was yeah i didn't even realize he had a name but yes you're right yeah he's DJ. that um I, I probably would assume that we'll see him again but again that's the same thing where you know you because you remember the scene where he uh he uses rose's pendant mm. that she had from her sister mm. to to bridge the terminals in the door lock, mm. uh, and then he gives it back to her, and you think, "Oh, right, actually, you know, he's a good guy." Actually, he was a good guy after all. Yeah, but then, and he then it turns out that he set them up. <laughs> that's, that's right, he set them up, and he just takes the money and 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 gets out of there. Right. Again, that's as you mentioned. You know, that is a, another kind of connection back to that idea of sort of realism, and because mm. I think that 
in the original movies, obviously Han Solo plays that similar role where it's kind of like, you know, there's there's no mystical force that controls my destiny. You know, he says to um, to to Obi Wan and and Luke on the Millennium Falcon. Like, right. Although I've always thought of Han Solo's role as being closer to Poe Dameron, really. I mean, yeah. DJ is is closer to Lando. Uh, in what in what he does, yes, closer to mm. Lando. But in the idea that you know, he just sort of says, "Hey, man, this is business." You know, if you're not selling money, if you're not selling weapons to the bad guys, you're getting rich selling weapons to the good guys. Right. Yes, and that was another. That actually is an is another thing that I thought was an example of of the film being a bit more adult than most Star Wars films right. and actually making an actual point. Like that whole Canto bite planet yeah. where the casino is, like those places exist. I mean, one of the criticisms of the film is it's a little bit too close to the casinos on Earth. It's very, evokes a, a very particular image in in our minds right. as Earth dwellers. But, you know, that... That is making a, a real point about, and again, back to this theme of, of disappointment. Like you can look at the whole thing and see this whole war we've been following throughout this entire series to a lot of people in the galaxy, which, you know, we don't get a view on the little people and the normal people, hmm. but to a lot of them, they don't care. They're just trying to get on with their lives. And right. this war is kind of not neither here nor there. They are affected by it, but... You know what I mean? Like they, the the war will rage on and will continue to ruin many of their lives, whatever they try and do. Right, right. And that's that's again, that's you know quite a dark point for a Star Wars movie to make. Yeah. So the other scene, just while we're still on DJ, another thing that I found, you know, my view of the film is overall positive, but there were a couple of things I disliked, and I think that Leia pulling herself back to the ship was one of them but another one was i didn't quite understand why i was expecting dj to sort of pull back his label at some point and have that whatever red flower it was they were looking for right right that they had seen on the posh guy at the casino table right and he was the code breaker right and i thought it was going to be one of those twists where like oh no he wasn't actually the code breaker she was referring to this guy right right but that wasn't the case. And in a sense, that's another example of, of the director playing with your expectations yeah. and saying, well, this is what the cliche thing to do is, mm. but I'm not going to do that. He's not the code breaker. He's just some guy. Mm. And he betrays them, right? But I don't know. I, I just don't know why they would sort of trust him. They've gone all the way down to this casino planet just to find this code breaker. Mm. And then they end up just getting some random to do this, you know, very critical, important mission. So, I don't know, that that rang a bit false to me. And I think even though it is a bit cliche, had he turned out to be the codebreaker and had he sort of had that mark on him somewhere, even if he hadn't been the codebreaker, if it somehow had a similar looking mark and they had just thought he was the codebreaker, hmm. it would have rang a bit more true for me. I found that a, a little bit... Just hard to swallow. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't. Uh, that didn't bother me at all. I think just because the mm. the nature of their escape from that planet, and also the mm. fact that they're in a rush, and right, you know, I remember, yeah, I mean, there was a time constraint, and I remember that the scene, you know, when um, uh, Finn is communicating with um, with Poe, mm. and he says, "Did you find the code breaker?" And he says, "We found a code breaker." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that that 
that line kind yeah. of put it in context for me. It's like, okay, well, they were trapped in the prison because things went sour. Right. And uh, this guy kind of, he's clearly an android DJ. I mean, there's no mis- no mistaking that. I mean, he rubs things in his teeth and then all of a sudden they're able to break doors and stuff. So oh, okay. I, I suspect strongly that he's some kind of android but anyway oh, okay. he gets them out of the cell and then they're you know they're trying to escape and and they actually end up escaping on his ship uh because their ship gets uh blown up right uh, and, and right. so like all of those things kind of okay well therefore they're now having to leave and yeah yeah right and, and he's all back. they've got yeah i suppose i suppose there is that and actually in a sense the fact that you know when he does end up betraying them and then the next thing you know, the the First Order starts shooting down these escaping ships. That's the second instance in which Poe Dameron's dumb ideas, and in this case, you know, Finn Rose's handiwork as well, Mm. has caused the death of a number of Resistance fighters. Mm. It's the second time in the movie we've seen their failure result in a lot of people dead. So, you know, maybe that, that is fitting in with the same... Hmm. notion of disappointment and of of seeing what sort of mistakes this kind of headstrong nature can can lead them to right maybe maybe that that does work and that does make sense now there was um two other scenes that i want to talk about okay uh, both of them i found just really extremely well done and the second one very very moving but i'll, I'll get to that in a moment the first one was mm-hmm. the symbolism of ray and kylo trying to pull the lightsaber in between them mm. to strike at the other one. And the lightsaber is caught, and the lightsaber actually breaks into two pieces. Yes. Now, do you know whose lightsaber that was? I thought that was Luke's. Yes, that's right. So that was actually Anakin's uh, lightsaber. Oh, I see. Which then gets passed to Obi-Wan, and then uh, Obi-Wan gives it to Luke in A New Hope, and then it gets somehow other mixed up around, and then... Uh, gets in the hands of Maz in um, episode seven. Yes. And then Maz gives it to Ray, right? Right. So that is Anakin's lightsaber, followed by Anakin's son, mm. essentially. And the fact that it gets split into two, mm. it was so beautifully symbolic. All right. Right. Um, the, the, and the, being pulled apart by the two sides. The dark side and the light side of the force. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which I thought was as like a kind of. Um, a signal for an, a new era of conflict, essentially. Mm. The fact that uh, such a significant lightsaber would be broken into two pieces by representatives of the light and of the dark, mm. I thought was was really excellent. Like, wow, that's, wow. Oh, that's great. <laughs> what did you think of the scene just before that where Kylo kills Snoke? What did you think of Snoke, actually, before we... That was another... Um, that whole scene, my, my friends were... Uh, were ranting on for very very long because they thought it was just rubbish but <laughs> Snoke yeah it I think when I saw him in episode seven mm-hmm. it just seemed really it's like well okay who's that don't really know I guess he's right. bad but very impo- this gigantic face right. the side you know twice right. the height of anybody talking to him like very imposing and the reality was was quite different from that right right and i think that the treatment of snoke in the last jedi mm. i guess i didn't feel either way because i didn't really feel either way about the character to begin with okay so it's, oh okay he's dead okay well, well there goes that then mm. i think that the 
it's kind of a to me anyway it seems sort of like a dead-end character anyway so mm, interesting i felt like he'd been built up quite a lot in episode seven and in a sense and i know i keep coming back to this but in a sense i think that also plays into this theme of disappointment mm. this is in a kind of a meta sense in a way but not the disappointment of any characters in the film but i think he's purposefully set up to disappoint the viewer right the viewer who has seen this gigantic head in episode seven and is expecting a very imposing very scary bad guy right and and gets this old man in a dressing gown right <laughs> the yeah, that's that's a good point i think that episode seven i thought was really entertaining because it had all of those things that i look for in a star wars movie mm. however snoke was sort of a bit too much of an obvious placeholder for the emperor in a new hope because episode seven took so much from a new hope right everything was just kind of rebranded jj abrams style you know right you have the the first order is replacing the empire and you have the star killer of basis replacing the death star and you have the snoke is replacing the emperor and like every right. kylo ren is replacing darth Vader exactly and, exactly and, yeah. and so on so everything was kind of like a uh, because it was so similar to A New Hope. Right. My feeling was, well, of course it's going to be good. How can you go wrong with that? So therefore, Snoke himself being, again, sort of like, to me anyway, this placeholder of A New Hope's emperor is kind of like, well, okay. It felt a bit sort of like a dead end. So therefore, to, to sort of kill him off in such a sudden way like that, mm-hmm. it, you just I didn't feel either way about it. It's like, okay, well, there goes him then. Did did it uh, did, did that disappoint you deeply, or did you want them to? Because my friends were complaining that Snoke had so much potential to be brought out into something that was actually significant to the story, not just some guy who might be a Sith Lord, but we don't really know. Right? No, I, I wasn't bothered by his being killed. I thought that worked and made perfect sense. Mm. Like it felt neither particularly bad or disappointing, nor did it feel particularly surprising or impressive when. They had Kylo Ren trick him into thinking that he was going to kill Rey when, in fact, he was going to kill him. That seemed almost obvious. It seemed like a very natural... It was one of the few things that wasn't surprising in the movie, I thought. It was, you know, just, okay, fair enough. That makes sense. Let's move on. Mm. The one thing I do think about it, though, and maybe we'll talk a bit more about this once we get to the end of the movie, but I don't know what they're going to do for the next movie. Mm. And I guess maybe that's not Ryan Johnson's problem. <laughs> he doesn't have to worry about that too much. He, his job was to make a good movie for this movie, not to set up the next movie. But they've killed off the big bad guy they had. Kylo Ren is a bit of a whiny child. I don't know if he can stand on his own mm. in the place of a Darth Vader or the Emperor or even Snoke. Like, he's not he's too sympathetic a character apart from anything else right and he's not really that scary so yeah i don't i don't know who like are they gonna roll up another emperor clone next time or is kylo ren suddenly going to become a lot more impressive than he has been to date or you know i don't know what they're going to do for the next movie but Mm. so i think snoke you know killing off snoke there leaves a bit of a a weird hole for the next director to fill which is but that, so many things in this movie do that i mean the next director i think has has quite a difficult job because they've got to make a, a movie that is that feels like a star wars movie that is going to make the fans happy hmm. but at the same time 
that follows on from this movie, which broke so many Star Wars conventions and set things up to make a very new kind of movie. Mm. Yeah, about Kylo Ren, I thought that... Uh, actually, I find it very exciting that the next movie, potentially, the main big bad guy is going to be him. Mm. Because I think that as such a, an immature, kind of adolescent kind of character, mm. I think that that has a huge range of actually very, very, probably at a few points, potentially very disturbing kind of potential directions that his character can go in. Mm. If he is going to be the main bad guy, then... Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential for some really interesting and very, um, as I said, very thought-provoking directions that this extremely powerful young adolescent mm. <laughs> can, could go in in order to make him the, the, the single most evil thing in, in the whole um, galaxy. So I was just reading that uh, Ryan Johnson has been signed up to make a trilogy of movies. Mm. I don't know if that means it was on the it's on the Lucasfilm website, and I don't know if that means that a trilogy of movies meaning that this is the first one out of two more to come or whether it's going to be like a kind of a rogue one kind of thing where he'll do his own thing mm. and they'll have three of them. Um, but I'm not sure that his role in uh, Star Wars is completely over yet. But uh, mm. yeah, so anyway, to to close our discussion, I, I wanted to talk about the single most moving scene for me. Okay. Just prior to that, actually, the the that planet with the the red sand, like the white sand with the red dirt underneath it, mm. uh, visually was just stunning. I thought it was fabulous as, as a, a, a point to look at, you know, that, that colour, mm. the whites with the mm. red, and then, and then the, um, the pilots flying out in those old, old kind of <laughs> kind of broken down, broken. they look like old <laughs> B-wings, I guess, but they, they were, where he Poe puts his foot through the floor of the thing. <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, uh, yeah. that was great. Yeah, but, they've done is, that base has not been used in a while. And they actually played with it because you kind of, again, you know, these new movies are taking a lot of things from the, the old movies and, and taking inspiration from that. And you said episode seven is, is like a, a rehash almost of A New Hope. Mm. But they played with your expectations there again because you're expecting, you know, a snow battle. Right. And then at the start, somebody tastes it and it's like, oh, it's salt. Right. <laughs> Which is just something you do on an alien planet, isn't it? You just put a bit of the dirt in your mouth. and, and Right. <laughs> that guy was, was pretty brave. He probably knew that he was going to die in the next hour anyway. So he thought, well, <laughs> what have I got to lose? I either die from like uh, eating this toxic thing off the ground or, or being shot. <laughs> anyway, um, the for me the the most moving scene and again sadly this was another thing that really frustrated my um friends that I went to see it with but mm. luke's death mm. my friends were frustrated because he he could firstly they thought it was implausible that he could project a, such a realistic image of himself just in some random location on a different planet mm. and perform all of those actions and and sort of physically be there more or less mm. but in image even though he was levitating over a rock on the island. They, like, they thought that was just ridiculous. That part, you know, did, didn't bother me that much, but his death, mm. you know, where he completes that objective and then he he's, falls down to the rock mm. and he's completely drained, completely exhausted, mm. and he looks up and he sees the sunset of those two suns. Mm. That was absolutely spine-tingling for me because in A New Hope, one of my favourite, favourite scenes that I can remember from my childhood mm. is the scene of Luke looking out over the uh, the desert planet, looking at the sunset of the two suns. Mm. And 
I can remember seeing that as a child. And now every time I see the sun since then, or seeing the moon during the day, mm. I'm always imagining, oh, what would it be like if there were like two suns mm. or if there were like two moons? And when you think about the, the symbolism of that scene in A New Hope where he's this young, innocent boy with grand dreams, always looking to the future, as Yoda says, you know, never focused on here and now. He's sort of mind wandering off into this fanciful flight of heroics and legends and all that kind of stuff. And mm. he's looking up into the distance and seeing these two suns setting, no doubt thinking about, you know, how am I going to get off this rock? You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> probably thinking as a lot of us do at that age, you know, in, in the teens, thinking that I'm, I'm destined for great things, but I'm stuck here. Mm. And then at the end of his life, you know, you go through all of the stuff that he does in his life and at the very end of his life, he looks up and he sees those same two suns again, different suns obviously, mm. but the, the, just the fact that he's looking out over the horizon and seeing this binary star system with these two suns setting. Mm. Again, the, the symbolism of that tying into the start of his life when he was very uh, naive and very I idealistic mm. to the end of his life where he's so jaded and so cynical and so beaten down by everything that he's been through mm. to tie it back together by looking at the thing that sort of almost inspired him to go on this this journey in the first place just brought it around into this nice circle for me that I thought in the in the the grand scheme of of his life what a fantastic way to 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 depict his passing is is seeing that that he saw when he was so young, mm. just for me, that that was uh, such a moving moment. And I, I can't stop thinking about it for some reason. Mm. It might be because as a child, you know, constantly looking up into the sky myself and seeing our moon or our sun and thinking, wouldn't it be great if we had two of them? And being a big fan of science fiction and playing a lot of Elite Dangerous where you get a lot of binary star systems, but that's a different topic yeah yeah I, I must say i didn't i didn't notice that symbolism uh i now that you mention it i do remember the scene that you're referring to in a new hope but it hadn't occurred to me until you brought it up mm. yeah that is quite memorable and also you know then the way that he disappears and his cloak is left and sort of yeah flies away much as obi-wan's cloak collapses to the ground when he you know disappears with the force yeah and yoda yoda does that too yeah so yeah that all that all links together nicely and is actually in a sense like one of the more hopeful parts mm. of the film weirdly because it's, it's luke's passing but in fact that's in a film that that i have said is mostly about disappointment it ends on those two notes luke's passing away and then the child on that casino mm. planet yeah looking up at uh, the grabbing the broom with the force right and looking up at the sky what did you think about that last scene? Now, I actually didn't notice that he did that. Mm. I think I was I was so stricken by that scene with Luke that <laughs> uh, and and that's at that point of course the music is at its absolute climax and you know of course uh, being a lover of all music I'm I'm particularly focused on the music in movies and uh, I didn't actually notice that the child used the force to grab the broom. Mm. Knowing that now, yeah, I, I mean does <laughs> okay, great, nice. Good. It's good. It's a, there's a little bit, there's something a little bit saccharine about, you know, the children are our future and all that. And it does also, I mean, if the resistance now is down to a sort of scrappy group of like 20 people or something right, right. <laughs> survived that battle at the end. And if we're relying on him and his, 
merry pack of horse tenders or whatever they are right <laughs> yeah to, you know that we're gonna have to wait for another 10 or 20 years yeah i think um <laughs> the next film but. i think that uh that knowing that that the, the boy grabbed it with the force and okay great so perhaps there's the potential for new children with the whatever metachlorian count or whatever whatever I, I i don't think that's canon anymore yeah. i think we <laughs> we've left that behind us yeah um <laughs> i think uh yeah, being a parent myself and seeing the the growth of my children, and again, my friends were were very, 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 very uh, uh, foul mouthed about that scene where he's grabbing it with the with the uh, with the force. But I again, I, I felt that they don't have children. I don't know if that makes a huge huge difference, but for me, I guess I well, I see children in a in perhaps a different way than they do. That the thing is that I think because I was coming down from that amazing moment with Luke reflecting on his life, looking at these two, well, I imagined that he was reflecting on his life, uh, looking at these these two sons back to when he was a child and being so naive and so innocent mm. in his childhood, then followed up by that scene with this child. Again, to me, it just sort of brought it around. So I, I don't think I, I, I didn't feel that it was, you know, awkward or, or silly or anything, unlike my friends. Yeah. I can I can sort of see both sides. I it like I say that it, it is a little bit cliche and comes across a little bit sickly sweet. This whole mm. sort of children as a symbol of hope, right? It's definitely a cliche, but I think it worked. It mm. was all right. I don't. I didn't mind. And uh, yeah, I thought it was a nice way to end the movie. I mean, it, it, it like you said, it followed on very nicely from that scene with Luke. Mm. It it was a natural sort of closing off of that beat right there was um i mean there, there was one like i said i wasn't i didn't go into it with high expectations for great story or great hard science or or uh, great dialogue or anything um but, but i don't i i don't understand how anyone can go into a star wars movie looking for hard science it's, <laughs> it is not that right there's many things star wars but hard science it is not uh yeah the, what they were my friends were complaining about the bombs because they're hanging out of the bottom of those bombers, yeah, and they, it looks like oh, they're falling they fall. out of the bottom, yeah, with gravity, yeah. Uh, oh, I guess, but anyway, they might be pushed because there's no friction to stop them. Ah, so it could just as well be they're pushed from the top. The one thing that I kind of thought, yeah, okay, that's a little bit dumb, was the uh, the force connection between Kylo and Ray. Oh, interesting. And you know, there's a there's a scene where he's he's just wearing pants, right? And Ray says, "Do you you just want to like put on a towel or something?" You know, yeah. I wish you. And it's kind of like they're you know having some kind of social media <laughs> chat conversation or something. You know that 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 was one of the instances of there were sometimes while watching the movie that I I simultaneously laughed and genuinely found funny, but also thought, are there too many jokes in this movie? Like there were, there were moments when I thought that. <laughs> when it sometimes it felt like the jokes were packed right. in a little bit too tight, right? But then, then I thought, chill out. Like I, I decided, I decided to sort of not worry about whether there were too many jokes, mm. and and enjoyed it much more for it. Yeah. And I actually really enjoyed that moment. Mm. You know, <laughs> it's a pointless, topless scene, right? right. Adam Driver, but um, <laughs> yeah, but it's great. I thought it was great, yeah. and I am much enjoying the many memes that have been born from this moment oh, I have to go on have the interwebs so. <laughs> i have to go have a look yeah i think that um just to sum it up my feelings about it that yeah i i um i think that for star wars for me personally i guess 
I've always approached it with a certain sort of childlike kind of viewpoint Mm. just because that's what, in my understanding, and I know everybody's different and that's fine, but in my understanding, uh, that's what Star Wars means to me. You know, it's kind of like a, Mm. it's, it's, yeah, like I, like I described earlier, you know, it's, it's a bit of fun really. And it's, it's, uh, very engaging, very enjoyable, extremely entertaining fun with this sort of science fiction backdrop. Mm. Therefore, yeah, you know, the humor, yeah, I actually, I felt that it was all very, just very entertaining. Um, I didn't feel it was too excessive, but just, yeah, to wrap it all up, I, I thought uh, it was just very, very enjoyable. I, I don't I don't feel that I, I, I can understand, you know, Star Wars means so many things to so many different people and many people are extremely passionate about things that I don't really look for in a Star Wars movie, such as the 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 universe that it's based in and all the things that are happening in it and the way things connect to each other. Mm. Um, other people go to it, you know, looking for, um, evidently looking for hard science, certain people, but also <laughs> looking for, you know, really, really excellently crafted storylines and, and making sure that nothing feels awkward and nothing is oddly placed and everything seems to fit in and flow nicely and, and seems consistent and plausible. And those things to me don't really sort of fit with the definition of, a big, awesome, silly space opera. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there does come a point where, like, there have to be rules, right? Mm. The Force is kind of essentially a form of magic pasted onto a sci-fi universe. No, it's so not, it's, Danny. You know, it's, 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 it's a thing. It's chemistry. It's, it's biology. It's <laughs> it's very similar to the, the role that magic takes in, in a fantasy setting. It just happens to be sci-fi. Right. But even in a fantasy setting, magic has to follow rules. There have to be limits. Otherwise, the whole thing is pointless, right? right? You can just explain away anything using the rules. And so I can see why people make the argument right. that, for example, Kylo Ren and Ray's connection over those distances is is not possible with the force or that luke skywalker's projection i didn't realize what was going on at first actually and i thought he had actually survived all those missiles yeah me too blasting into him and i thought that was stupid okay so when it turned out that he was like throwing a projection of himself and that wasn't him i was relieved because it you know that actually removed a thing that i found stupid as a story right um I, I I find it less realistic that the force, you know, I find that would that would break the movie more if the force could just withstand that level of a battering. Right. Then why not do that all the time? Why not protect right. all the ships with the force? Why not? You know, there's so many things you could say. Well, why not do that? Right. Whereas, yes, it is an amazing feat, and unlike anything that we've seen before, for him to have projected his image over that incredible distance. Right. And it certainly, you know breaks relativity Mm. because he's i think light years away at this point so he would have have to have seen the future in order to project himself in advance but anyway right um, you know there are problems with it yeah but there aren't so many other points in the movie where you think okay well if we take as read that he could have done that that would have solved a problem in the movie. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, him ex- withstanding those explosions, like every movie would just have that all the time right. if they could. Right, right. Really. Just one last question. Did you feel that Ray's sudden proficiency with using the force was too too sudden? Because, you know, at the end she lifts up all the rocks so that, so that they can get out the... Of the cave, and that didn't that didn't bother me. Right. Um, she had already, I think, had that moment of, of self-discovery on whatever the name of the planet was and the island right. that, that Luke Skywalker was on. You know, she had been lifting the little pebbles 
accidentally right. without even intending to use the force they just sort of lifted and then everything went a bit dark right uh, <laughs> she and that is one thing to say about ray what you know before we finish the podcast and, and leave this unsaid she is the only force user i think to have gone to the dark side willingly to see what it's like right and then come back right she is the only one that we've seen that can withstand the the pull of the dark side right right um and it's the only female force user we've really seen mm. that's an interesting that's true. sort of there are interesting conclusions to be drawn there i think in the prequels there are females um there are a few oh, they're, they're, sorry yeah not the first female force users we've seen the fem- the first female force user we've seen approach the dark side oh, i see yeah we don't know you know other female force users may or may not have ever had that temptation mm, right we've seen a number of male force users either approach the dark side and be drawn in or avoid being drawn in by just refusing to even get anywhere near it right right but we've never seen someone go and and spend time there and mm. and be drawn to it and then walk away. Right. That's I think a first. Right. Um, so anyway, so I think we've seen that that her strength really grew as a result of that mm. time on the island. Even though you don't see her do amazing things and lift up her spaceship and things like that. <laughs> right. And so that so that didn't really bother me when she was lifting up the stones. But did I miss something? Was there a scene with her in? between when Anakin's lightsaber broke and then she flew in on the Millennium Falcon. Like, I don't remember how she got away from Kylo Ren. Uh, Did that, was that just left unsaid? You mean after the scene with the... After the fight, right. after Snoke gets killed and they have the fight and then she realises that Kylo Ren has his own plans and then they fight over the lightsaber and it breaks. Then the scene cuts away to something else, and the next thing she's flying in on the Millennium Falcon. But that's because the ship is exploding, isn't it? Because that's that's the point where oh, the ship is already exploding. The ship that she's on is already exploding, and so in the confusion, she she gets away. Yeah, that's the point after the uh, was it Holdo uh, light speeds through the side of the ship. Right, right, right. Because that's the right, that's okay. Snoke's ship that that she does that to. So yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, so. um, yeah. yeah, I suppose. I mean, I yeah, I just. There was no point where you saw them separated, mm. right? They were they were together. The lightsaber broke, so I guess the immediate danger has got away. But something must have happened for them not to be fighting each other anymore, yeah. right? Because they've realized they're not on the same side. So, I mean, they're not going to just say, all right, see you later. I'm getting on the Millennium Falcon. Like, yeah, <laughs> I don't remember. It's probably, you know, just like a, a girder broke and, and <laughs> right. he fell right. down and she yeah. ran away. <laughs> right, or something like that. Something like yeah. that. Okay, fair enough. So... Well, this, this so is... overall, two thumbs up. One from you, one from me. Yep. I was, I was actually wondering because I, I obviously I hadn't asked your opinion before we came in, mm. and I've seen so many people on Facebook who like the original trilogy really hating this movie. So I wondered if you would be in that boat, but evidently, no, I, not. No, evidently, our, our taste is similar. Yeah, I actually, um, I think um, I'm just trying to recall episode seven and episode one, two, and three. Did you see Rogue One as well? I haven't. No. Oh, you must see that. Yeah, I. You must it's, make time. It's it's hard with with a three year old and an eight year old around, but um, but yes, I. You uh, can do it. Um, <laughs> I would, yes, I definitely like to, but um, yeah, you know, episode one, two, and three uh, as well. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, they're all a bit uh, silly, but I, I guess um, there are there are also things in there that I really enjoy, like the costume design is spectacular in those three, and the mm. um, again, spaceships and great music and 
lightsabers and uh, you know the kind of stuff that I look for in a Star Wars movie. So th- there are definitely aspects in those that I enjoyed as well. Wow. Um, episode seven, as I mentioned, kind of you can't really go wrong, I guess, <laughs> if you're just remaking a New Hope. <laughs> so yeah, I guess I'm as far as Star Wars movies goes, I'm I'm pretty easy to please because of the things that I look for in them. Mm. And so yeah, in that regard, this. This particular episode eight, The Last Jedi, was, uh, yeah, big big thumbs up from me. I, I uh, thought it was very entertaining. Fair enough. So. Very good. Big, big, big thumbs up from somebody who's easy to please. Yes. That <laughs> says a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> Damned with faint praise. Good, good work, Ryan Johnson. You, you've pleased the most easy to please Star Wars fan in the world. <laughs> Set the bar high. Uh, well, I, yes, I also thought it was very good. I don't want to make any bold statements about placing it in where it is in the list of my favorites but um mm. i definitely enjoyed it very much so there you go 